0: It's the media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. Remember all the blather about the new era of space tourism after Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson blasted themselves off into space. And by the way, I thought it was exciting. I thought it was great that they did it. Uh, I particularly got caught up on the day when Branson was landing his spacecraft because it happened during my hour on Fox News and I wound up anchoring that coverage. But the, I always thought it was sort of overblown that like, oh, lots of people would be able to do this. So now Branson's Virgin Galactic has uh, is selling tickets again for the future flights. And the sales will start at $450,000. That's about twice uh, the price that had been paid during the years when they were selling tickets. But, you know, you're just making reservations for the eventual flight. So Yeah, if you can pony up almost a half million bucks, sure, you can blast into space. But let's just say that's a very tiny slice of our population. Uh, And I don't think it's the kind of thing where it's going to come down dramatically. Cost a lot of money to get to the edge of outer space. Uh, Of course it does. All right, it's Friday. It means I hope you have a good weekend coming up. We're making final changes on Media Buzz. We continue to make these changes until Sunday morning when you can watch the show at 11 Eastern. And that means, you know, I always have a lot of moving targets. If we're talking about vaccinations, or uh COVID tests i got to look at what the latest numbers are what's the latest thing the president said people on capitol hill is the infrastructure bill going to pass it's infrastructure week again right it was supposed to pass the senate late last night but it got caught up in a whole tangle of amendments and procedural objections the congress can never get anything done quickly um and then things just happen that you don't expect at the last minute i mean i've made changes. Five minutes before airtime on Sunday morning when this developing story used to do it all the time with uh, Trump tweets because, you know, he would he, he knew he, he was very attuned to the news cycle. And he knew that, you know, all the Sunday shows come on and he wanted to get his latest shots in uh, Joe Biden. Not so much. Not so interesting on the Twitter. A couple other items. Republican Congressman Ralph Norman of South Carolina, who's one of three GOP members who filed a suit. Just last week, against Nancy Pelosi over the House mask mandate has tested positive for coronavirus. And I I never take any joy in reporting these things. I'm sorry to see anybody get it. Like Lindsey Graham and others who are getting, uh, who have come down with COVID. You know, he's already been vaccinated, so he's got the mild symptoms. In fact, he tweeted, after experiencing minor symptoms, I sought a test, was informed the results were positive. Thankfully, I've been fully vaccinated. My symptoms remain mild. Norman, Marjorie Taylor Greene and a third Republican filed suit against Pelosi saying that the, the fi- they were fined uh, 500 bucks each back in May for violating the House rule on masks. And they argued that that was unconstitutional. So obviously that's going to generate some headlines when one of those members uh, gets COVID-19. Uh, have you been following this weirdo mystery of the missing liquor at the State Department. So when Mike Pompeo was secretary, he got a gift. You know, this ordinarily happens. Secretaries of State travel around. They they get gifts from foreign leaders, uh, foreign governments. They sometimes give gifts. And you know, if it's a if it's a photograph or something, it's fine. But if it's worth over a certain amount of money, there are protocols on what to do. So when uh, Pompeo went to Japan, uh, I believe this is a couple of years ago. Yeah, 2019. Japan's gift was. A bottle of whiskey worth $5,800. And so this had to go to the State Department chief of protocol. And now it's missing. Nobody can find the booze. Where is this $5,800 bottle of whiskey? That must be some good whiskey. Uh, it was at a G20 meeting that uh, Pompeo got the gift. And there's an internal probe now. Like nobody knows what happened to it. So I think the, the suspicion, you know, the insinuation, I should say, is, well, Pompeo probably drank the super expensive whiskey. But he was on Fox News yesterday. He said, I wouldn't know a $58 bottle of whiskey from a $5,800 bottle of whiskey. So, uh, you know, I think we're looking at a special prosecutor here. Um, I'm going to get to more on Andrew Cuomo a bit later in the podcast. But uh, there's a couple of photos in the New York Post that just made me slap my forehead. Did you hear that? Literally, slap my forehead. So if you're the governor of New York, and you've just been the subject of a state attorney general's report saying you sexually harassed 11 women, and the Democrats, your own fellow Democrats in Albany, are starting impeachment proceedings, and all of these Democrats, from President Biden to Chuck Schumer to Nancy Pelosi to Kirsten Gillibrand, and on and on and on, are saying that you should resign. Why would you want the optics of these photos that were obtained somehow by the New York Post? I don't know how the photos were taken. It's at the executive mansion where Cuomo lives. He lives full-time. He doesn't have another house. So if he does get run out of office, he's going to have to find a place to live. Anyway, the mansion has a pool. And the photos show Cuomo lounging by the pool in one of those, you know, lounge chairs, doing some work. And by his side is this blonde woman, and he's on the chaise, and she is sitting on the floor, on on the ground there, uh, a couple of feet away from him, facing the opposite direction, facing him, and she has her laptop or something on, and some kind of table, and, and they're working. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, But it turns out the woman is his secretary, Stephanie Benton. She's typing away. She's wearing a kind of a summer dress, a jumper. She's taking off her flip-flops. And it it just, you look at these pictures, and again, they're just doing work. They're sitting by the pool, so what? Who cares? Except the sexual harassment report just came out. Maybe that's not the image you want going around the world. So I just don't, you know, again, I'm not insinuating anything. I just think the optics are awful. Uh, Okay. So I want to start here with story number one, David Brooks column in the New York Times, moderately conservative columnist who's been there for a long time, a guy I have interviewed over the years. And he says, Joe Biden's approach is working. Now, I don't completely agree with this argument, but it's an interesting one. And it has to do with the people on Capitol Hill and in politics who get all of the attention, Uh, The cable news hits, they're big on social media, Um, you know, whether it's AOC, whether it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, you name it. And then it has to do with the people in Congress who actually do a lot of the grunt work and try to get things done. And he's drawing a contrast here. And and, and let me just read you a little bit of this. He said, there's a two-track pattern that prevailed when COVID hit. There was the circus, the media circus, happens to be the title of my first book, uh, gave us the mask and the vaccination wars. Right, all the sniping going on. It's still going on today. But Congress, says Brooks, was productive and bipartisan. The Senate passed the COVID relief measure 96 to 1. This is back in March of 2020. And another bill 90 to 8 in March. Another one 96 to 0 in late March. And then another one in December toward the end of Trump's term, 92 to 6. The House votes were also landslides. So, in other words, for all of the sniping and the partisanship and the polarization and the demonization, Congress actually did its job, at least on that. There's a whole lot of other stuff where Congress is not doing its job, so this is why I'm not completely buying onto this. Um, so, the infrastructure bill, $1 trillion measure. I'll have more to say about this a couple months, too actually ended up passing the test vote. It actually hasn't passed, and it may not pass in the end. But it looks like the Republicans want to get this deal done. This is the bipartisan bill. Passed the Senate 67 to 32, a sign that experienced uh, politicians can, as Biden argues, make the system work. So this is why Brooks is saying, hey, Joe Biden's approach is working. He's trying to be bipartisan. He's trying to be serious. He himself doesn't go around. Um, grandstanding, attacking people on Twitter, and so forth and so on. The Biden administration has moved to separate government from the culture wars. Now, here I think he's onto something. It shifted a power away from the Green New Deal and Freedom Caucus show horses and lodged it with the congressional workhorses, people like Republican Rob Portman and Democrat Mark Warner, who are in no danger of becoming social media stars. The moderates are stu- suddenly in strong shape, he says. The progressives say they won't support the Biden infrastructure bill, the bipartisan one, unless it's passed simultaneously with the much larger three and a half trillion dollar bill. But if the Democrats can't agree on the larger bill, will progressives really sink their president's infrastructure initiatives? Yeah, I think in the end, they'd probably back down. Uh, Finally, Brooks says, we've come a long way since the AOC glory days of 2019. Biden, you know, certainly not of the Bernie wing. Uh, In fact, he says Biden won the presidential nomination, not Bernie Sanders. Progressive excesses like defund the police cost Democrats dearly down ballot. And there's been some of these special elections, which I mentioned yesterday, in which the more establishment Democrats, not the hard left Democrats, have been winning, uh, at least the primaries. Uh, Brooks says a faction that keeps losing primaries can't be the base. Joe Biden is the base. And Biden and the 91% of Democrats who view him favorably want to make the system work. Now, I think Brooks is a little too optimistic here. I think that the ideological, I don't want to call them extremes, but the ideological uh, caucuses in both parties, the hard right Republicans, the hard left Democrats, are still a really strong force, in part because they can generate media coverage, drive media coverage, uh, create, and, and look, the latest evidence, uh, which I don't think Brooks gets into here, was what I talked about yesterday. And I have a whole column on this that really gets into the nuances on Fox, if you're interested. Uh, and that has to do with the eviction ban, where, you know, Biden wanted to keep people. Actually, it was Donald Trump who wanted to keep people temporarily being thrown out of their homes and apartments during the pandemic. So he passed something. Then it lapsed. Then the CDC passed something. It was renewed three times. And finally, the Supreme Court rules that this is illegal. It's unconstitutional. And Biden admits it. And then he flips under pressure from the Progressive Caucus, from people like Nancy Pelosi, by the way. And so, you know, I I think it's it would be nice to believe that in the end Congress comes together and the the cooler heads prevail and they do bipartisan things together. But there's a lot of evidence that that's not happening on a whole lot of issues. Immigration, voting rights, police reform. Nothing's happening on those issues. And the reason is the polarization and the demonization. But Brooks does make the point that there are people in Congress who continue to try to hammer out these compromises. And compromise is how government works. I know it's a dirty word these days, but... It's how government works. And occasionally, it works. And if this infrastructure bill passes, it will be a symbol of how it works, but it will be an outlier. It will be the exception. All right, number two. Well, the numbers keep going up. We're now in the six figures. Number of new daily coronavirus cases. I have talked about how it was 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000. Then I got up to 60,000. This is getting serious. Right now, the average, 100,000. 100,000 new COVID-19 cases in the United States of America. This is going in the wrong direction, folks. 80% of that is the Delta variant. And a lot of it is in, you know, a handful of states, Florida and Texas high on that list, and certain counties and, and geographic regions within such states where people are far less vaccinated. On the other hand, some glimmer of good news There were 864,000 vaccinations delivered between Wednesday and Thursday. That is the highest number since July 3rd. And so what it shows, in my view, is the more that people are getting sick, the more that people are dying, even though the death rates, thankfully, are nowhere near what they were at the peak of the pandemic, the more people are getting scared. And fear is a great motivator. And the press has been all over this. And so I think some of the people who say, oh, I don't really need it or it's not going to happen to me. You know, they're seeing people die. They're seeing people hospitalized. I think that's why those numbers, uh, I'm happy to report, are creeping up. Also, some good economic news today. The unemployment rate dropping to 5.4%. That's almost as good, I think, as it was pre-pandemic. Almost a million new jobs created. Now, maybe that's peak. We don't know. But it's encouraging news. Uh, But the Washington Post has a story about the debate within the Biden administration about getting more of those 90 million American holdouts to get these shots. Biden administration is considering using federal regulatory powers and the threat of withholding federal funds from institutions to push more Americans to get vaccinated. This would be a major escalation. And the story makes clear that the president isn't quite sold on this yet. Um, He doesn't want to be that aggressive in forcing people. But on the other hand, he talks about this as an emergency. He likens it to a wartime emergency. He often talks about the more than 600,000 Americans who have died from COVID-19 and compares that to um, the number of soldiers who died in foreign wars over the past century. 615,000 is now the latest figure. So... What's being debated within the administration could apply, according to the Washington Post, to such institutions as nursing homes and long-term care facilities, cruise ships, universities, potentially impacting millions of Americans. Now, the story makes clear that Biden hasn't decided to do this. There's even a, a discussion about whether they might hold back Medicare funding and other federal funding to persuade nursing homes to require employees to be vaccinated. I mean, if I'm running a nursing home, you're not coming in here with this vulnerable population, even though uh, many of them, most of them have been vaccinated. You're not coming in here if you don't get the shot. It should be part of the job requirement. Um, But these drastic moves, as the paper acknowledges, would likely trigger a further backlash from many Republican-leaning regions where vaccine hesitancy has been the highest and conservatives are already skeptical of the Biden administration and its use of federal power. Uh, one administration official, senior official, of course, quoted anonymously as saying, Biden doesn't believe he could do a federal mandate, but will we look at other sectors of the federal government and make determinations about where other potential mandates or self-attestation programs might be effective? Yes. So I just have to add, as a matter of background, the government does this all the time. There are all kinds of laws on the books that says we will uphold federal money For example, from colleges and universities, if you discriminate, if you don't follow Title IX, uh, all kinds of things. Now, it's not used. It's kind of a a, a stick that's not employed all that often, but the threat of losing federal dollars can be um, very effective. So just as an example that that this particular story cites, the federal government threatened to withhold money from any state that didn't raise the drinking age to 21 during that big push to get it raised from 18 to 21 uh, in order to crack down on drunk driving. So this is just you know one example of how the government does it. So if it can be done for drunk driving, if it can be done as a question of anti-discrimination, why couldn't you make a case that um, colleges that don't require at least the staff and maybe the students, a lot of colleges and universities already doing this on their own to get vaccinated, are going to lose federal dollars. Is that heavy-handed? You can certainly argue that it's heavy-handed. But this is a life-and-death situation. Meanwhile, um, a lot of the companies and institutions that were going to go back after Labor Day are now pulling back. And this is interesting, according to another post story. um, The Pentagon... On Monday, I hadn't realized this, I has actually started sending home thousands of employees just three weeks after recalling them to that giant building across the river here in Virginia. Meanwhile, at the Veteran Affairs Department, there are daily discussions about whether to tell their staffs who are working from home not to return after Labor Day after all. And also, what's, what's totally lost in this debate is how exactly do you do this if you have a vaccine mandate? As President Biden has done for all federal employees, otherwise they have to show weekly tests. So here's spokeswoman for the Air Force, which has 200,000 civilians. She's quoted on the record as saying, at this point, we don't know anything. There's still not a mechanism right now to collect this information on whether you're vaccinated or not. Are we talking about entering this on an Excel spreadsheet? Uh, so in other words, it's fine to say, oh, I am mandating this, but you got to have a system. And then if people don't want to get the vaccine and they're required to get tests, you have to have a system set up for tests. Do they have to go to the private sector for tests? Who pays for these tests? There's a lot of unanswered questions here. In the private sector, United Airlines has now become, I guess, the first major airline to require employees to be vaccinated against the coronavirus. Yesterday, the governors of Maryland and Virginia Uh, did what some other states have done and what Biden is doing. Employees have to be vaccinated or will have to undergo weekly tests. CNN is making some news for having fired three staff members yesterday for working in the office despite being unvaccinated. Um, That sounds like an excessively harsh punishment to me because CNN didn't have a system that said you cannot come to work unless you get a vaccine. And, you know, other uh, media companies including Fox News, are grappling with this. Uh, We all had to get tests, weekly tests, for a while. Now, if you can show you had the vaccine, you don't have to necessarily get the test every week. Um, New York Times, I think, is requiring uh, vaccination or weekly tests. So Jeff Zucker, the uh, CNN president, put out a statement saying, all three have been terminated. Let me be clear. We have a zero-tolerance policy on this. He said even staffers who are working out in the field with colleagues must also be inoculated if they're not coming into the office. But here's the thing. CNN had been using an honor system to monitor its its employees' vaccination status. Zucker says that might change. Now, Zucker didn't explain how the company learned about the vaccination status of these fired employees who were not named. We don't know if they're low-level, high-level. Were they given a chance to get vaccinated and refused? There's a lot here we don't know. But clearly, I mean, because it's CNN, it's getting a lot of attention. But clearly, these are the kinds of dilemmas that a lot of companies are now going to face. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. Let's move on to number three. You know, I've been saying this. I'm not a, a certified accountant. I'm not a fiscal expert. But I've been around Washington long enough to know when a bill is paid for, when it's not paid for. There used to be a thing called scoring. The Congressional Budget Office would have to score a bill, and that would be a big deal back when members of Congress of both parties cared about whether they were paying for the legislation they were passing. And so on this infrastructure bill, this $1 trillion bipartisan bill, I've been telling you, I've been writing day after day, it's not paid for, it's a joke. The Republicans wouldn't go along with the taxes Biden wanted. The Republicans wouldn't even go along with the uh, beefing up IRS enforcement, which even that it's questionable how much it would bring in. And so it's a bunch of accounting gimmicks. And now we have the Congressional Budget Office, which is nonpartisan, saying that this bill, which is about $550 billion in new spending, uh, nearly half of that, $256 billion, would just add to the nation's debt. In other words, it's not paid for. It is a joke. And so now that Caused certain uh, members of Congress to try to object to this uh, last night in the debate, and I don't blame them. It is a scam. It's just adding to the deficit and the debt. Now, for here's an example pointed out by the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget. The senators claim two hundred billion dollars in savings from unused funds from earlier pandemic relief packages. In other words, we're going to use this money. It's so already been appropriate. It doesn't add to the deficit. But this committee says this is a good watchdog group. Those savings had already occurred, so they can't be counted as an offset. You can't use it twice. That's the kind of stuff we're looking at. All right, number four, uh, having to do with Andrew Cuomo. Uh, Matt By is an interesting column in the Washington Post about Andrew and his dad, Mario. Now, when I was based in New York, I covered Governor Mario Cuomo, um, who um, was a national hero. He gave this incredibly stirring speech at the 1984 Democratic Convention. And there'd always been this subtle competition between Mario and Andrew, because Andrew, as a young kid, was actually Mario Cuomo's campaign manager. And Andrew was, just like he is now, was the hard-charging, bare-knuckled guy. And Mario Cuomo could give the high-minded speeches. He was incredibly inspiring, whether you agree with his policies or not. He was very eloquent and talked about how we, for example, one of his famous lines is we uh, we campaign in poetry, but we govern in prose. And so Bayh writes that Mario uh, was statesmanlike, was more cerebral, tried to win you over to the obvious rightness of his cause. They enabled each other. Maybe that's the best way to understand it. Because Andrew was Andrew, the political tough guy, even in his teens, who would happily wade into the nasty business of New York politics, Mario got to go on being Mario, the high-minded priest of public morality, and I was always struck, the first time I met Andrew Cuomo, uh, you know, just the the way he talks, it's just, if you close your eyes, you heard Mario, the cadence, the Queen's cadence, and Chris Cuomo the same thing, And, and it's funny, they both talk about Mario, they don't call him dad, they sometimes call him pop, but they talk, they call him Mario, their own father, and so Mario Cuomo won three terms and then people got tired of him and he lost to George Pataki in his bid for a fourth term. Andrew was going to beat his dad. He's going to top his dad by winning a fourth term, which he probably could have done if it had not been for the sexual harassment allegations, where the question now is, can he even finish his third term? The New York Times has a piece about, uh, based on this report about the effort to retaliate against the first accuser, Lindsay Boylan. Uh, A lot of people in the media didn't even cover her initial allegations. And it talks about how the top aides to Governor Cuomo got together and tried to discredit her. One of those aides was the executive assistant who claims, and the governor denies, that he actually put his hand under her blouse and groped her breast. She had to be part. She had to go find the whiteout. Uh, so they could take some names out of this report, that, out of this letter they were going to put out. It was an op-ed they were going to publish. It ended up not being published based on confidential records. And there was this effort to say, oh, you know what? She didn't treat her subordinates well. This is Lindsey Boylan. In other words, they were going to discredit her as a lousy employee because she was making this charge, a charge is similar to what 10 other women have now said, against the governor. It really shows uh, to get into the details here, one administration and staffer identified in the Attorney General's report only as Caitlin. When she voiced her support for Lindsey Boylan on Twitter, Cuomo's top aides and loyalists, outside loyalists, mobilized to seek more information about whether Caitlin was working for Boylan or had it, her own allegations against Cuomo. Former staff member said he was pressured by uh, the governor's top aide, Melissa DeRosa, to call Caitlin out of the blue and re- record the phone conversation which Caitlin described as a fishing expedition on behalf of the executive chamber. There were also a couple of outsiders, people who had groups devoted to helping victims of sexual harassment and supporting gay rights, who were consulted by the governor in his office about this op-ed they wanted to put out. And now they're under attack by their own constituencies and they're issuing statements saying the governor should resign, but they were among Cuomo's confidants. And interesting, there is an interview, she's never been named, this executive assistant, number one, uh, who has made the groping allegation, but she was interviewed, I guess, for this New York Times story, and she said, I would be in the room when they were actively trying to discredit her, meaning Lindsay Boylan. They were actively trying to portray a different story of it, trying to make it seem like she was crazy. When she saw that, this unnamed assistant, she said, there's no way I'm, I'm going to go public with what, what the governor did to me, her version, she said she was terrified about reporting the interaction and potentially losing her job, saying, I was going to take this to the grave. So the, the, that's the other impact here, is other women were intimidated from coming forward because of the hardball tactics employed by the governor and his top aides and his inner circle and his outside advisors. They thought, who's going to believe them? They'll be discredited. They'll be called bad employees. They'll be called disloyal. And who are you going to go to if all of the top aides were um, supporting the governor, no matter what allegation was made, as a matter of personal loyalty? This really reflects on the toxic atmosphere, leaving aside the particular allegations by the 11 women that the governor has presided over. And finally, number five, my pillow guy, Mike Lindell, was interviewed by CNN, by CNN investigative reporter Drew Griffin, and it is wild. Now, remember, Mike Lindell, he's on this crusade to show that the election was hacked. He says that later this month he's going to have a cyber symposium. He's going to put out his evidence. He's never put out any evidence that anybody from the outside thought um, was credible. This is the um, cyber forum that Fox News declined to run ads promoting, and then Lindell pulled his MyPillow ads from Fox. So he sits down with the CNN reporter and he says, look, Trump actually won the election. China changed the votes in all the states, and he has the proof. So then Griffin tells viewers, it is, of course, complete nonsense. And he noted how every piece of evidence or so-called evidence that Lindell presented to CNN didn't actually show any election hacking or any kind of fraud. And they really start to go at it. I mean, it's it's pretty interesting television. Um he shows the screenshots of what Lindell had given the network and what he's put out publicly. And he says, it's just a scroll of voter rolls. It doesn't prove anything. Um, and then he went and interviewed um, the top official or election official in some Michigan county who said, no, this is ridiculous to say that our voting machines were hacked by China because our voting machines, says this local official, were never connected to the internet, could not be hacked because they were just freestanding machines with no online access. Uh, Every time that that the reporter would go back at him, Mike Lindell would say CNN was mistaken and that Drew Griffin was lying. So then Griffin says to Lindell, I don't think you really understand how votes are cast, collected and tabulated in this country, no matter who says it, whether it's elected election officials, local election officials, secretaries of state, judges, or even Donald Trump's own attorney general, Mike Lindell's conclusion is the same. They're all wrong. And Lindell then laughs and says, well then, why don't you come to the symposium and make $5 million? Uh, Lindell's offered a $5 million award to anybody who can substantiate these election fraud claims. Are you worried about me? We should give a hug. You're worried about old Mike? Oh, God bless you. So it's just sort of, you know, two people with completely different views of the world. Mike Lindell, who by the way, when he has this cyber symposium, there's going to be a lot of discounts offered on my pillows. So there's some, you know, whose business has been badly hurt by this crusade of his. So so there's some, uh, let's just say, self-serving profit motive here. At the same time, like CNN, you know, gave him the airtime to make his case and looked into the claims and says, sorry, we don't see anything here. And let's just say uh, it was an interesting exercise in trying to pin down a guy who refuses to be pinned down, who insists that the election was stolen. And I know a lot of Republicans believe that that Donald Trump somehow won, that Joe Biden is not a legitimate president. But I, as a journalist, all I can say is look at the facts. All of the lawsuits, the Bill bar, DOJ, uh, state officials, including Republican officials, Republican secretaries of state and in, in, in places like Georgia, saying sorry, no evidence here of widespread fraud, but this goes on, and it will continue to go on as long as there are people like the my pillow guy who may make good pillows, but hasn't proven this case. So once again, we got the weekend coming up. Hope you have a great time. Stay safe. Hope you'll catch media buzz uh, on Sunday morning. Hope you'll subscribe to our modest little podcast here on Apple iTunes and lots of other places. We're back here Monday with more buzz.